she's a glorified Alexa in the sense that she will come with a, with standard settings and then she will listen to you. So the joy that you have in your place is not going to be the same joy that is in, you know, that is with another guy. Right. Welcome to In Out Points, a film analysis podcast by a video producer and an amateur movie buff. I'm Josh, the video producer. And I'm Val, the amateur movie buff. Today we're talking about Blade Runner 2049. So before we get into actually watching the film, we wanted to take some time to introduce ourselves, you know, talk about our backgrounds a little bit, and, you know, also discuss why are, why are we making this podcast. Right. So I am in corporate video, and I have a degree in film, and for a few years I actually taught video editing and video production courses at the college level. What about you? So I don't have any film credentials or any film education of any type, however, I appreciate art in general, art as what it represents to humanity in general, and what people try to say through this medium. I hope you don't mind me taking the liberty. I was careful not to drag in any dirt. So why are we watching this film? Well, I know that for you, uh, the, the, the first film the, the, from 1982 or 83? 82. 82. Uh, was a big, um, the viewing of that film was a, was a big uh, point in your life. It started off your whole um, inspiration to find out how films are made and get you into the uh, film career. Um, for me, uh, I love films that are aesthetically beautiful and um, and also uh, you know make me think um, about the film as I'm walking out of the theater um, the day after, the week after. And a film that I will revisit, you know, once a year at least to um, think about it again and again because the the themes and the motifs are so um, are complex and deep and something that uh, really um, really needs uh, analysis and, and it needs contemplation. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, and you're 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 100% right. I think everyone who knows me knows how much the original Blade Runner, how important it is to me. Um, when I was 12 years old, I saw a, a TV spot for it on Sci-Fi Channel. Before it was Sci-Fi, S-Y-F-Y, it was the kind of the golden age of the Sci-Fi Channel. Mm -hmm. I saw mm -hmm. a TV spot for Blade Runner, um, Not never heard of it. Um, I knew Harrison Ford, but I'd never heard of the film. And the, the voiceover said it was the most stunning vision of the future ever, ever seen on film. Mm -hmm. So my, my brain was like, what? What is this? I, how could I have never heard of this, even though I was 12? But at the same time, you know, some people find certain scenes in that movie and this movie a little slow. I say it's meditative. Um, oh, yeah. But, and we're, yeah, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. I think that's, mm -hmm. a, that's a really good point. Um, these, these films are not, you know action films they're 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 slow burn mm -hmm. detective stories 
and in their mm -hmm. own way, film yes. noir. So in terms of why, how I came about this movie, um, I, uh, so I love science fiction um, in general, and I like dystopian uh, films, uh, depending on which ones, but uh, I, I do like dystopian films, especially when um, there is something, um, something kind of beautiful about it. Um, so, and there's several examples that can go on for ages, but uh, I rented it from my local library, and I was like, you know what? This has been mentioned in multiple things, referenced in multiple things. What's the big deal? Usually, uh, the, by the time I get to watch a film, a, a, a classic film, like let's say Breakfast at Tiffany's or, or Blade Runner or um, what's another one? A Silent Running was another one. I'm like, what, what's, okay, I keep hearing about it. It's on these lists. What's the big deal about it? Um, and uh, I, I watched it and the first time I watched it, I, I was mesmerized by it, but I didn't quite get it. Uh, and then it took me a second, third time to, to um, actually start thinking about the concepts that are presented in the film. So why don't you tell us about Blade Runner 2049? All right. So uh, for those that have not seen the film, um, the story follows uh, a protagonist uh, by the name of Kay. Um, he, we are told that uh, he is a replicant and he is um, given a job to uh, retire uh, which in this, uh, in, in this future, in this world, uh, really means, um, kill off, uh, a, a former model of a, of a replicant, um, uh, by the name of Sapper. Um, and that's, that really leads him, uh, down this mystery, uh, when he discovers that, uh, there is, uh, a grave actually on Sapper's site and he uncovers a secret um, about uh, replicants and uh, humans and uh, their joint evolution, so to speak, that um, could potentially unravel a lot of the um, a lot of the um, social and uh, political laws that are laws and norms that are in place in this world that is kind of keeping a lot of uh, a lot of the society together yeah it's a it's a huge huge secret that mm -hmm. uh that is you know extremely risky to get out now i will say um for anyone who's listening to this there's definitely going to be spoilers for any movie that we talk about Correct. so yeah um if you haven't already seen this film perhaps you know go go and watch it right now before before listening um but just know that there is there are going to be spoilers um for every film that we talk about now before we we continue in the the story because that's that's basically the the synopsis right there you know Kay finds the secret I wanted to talk about a few things um, you you did say that Kay was a replicant right correct I did not define what a replicant was and that can be a complex question that it that is very true um, well first maybe maybe just quickly define that and then okay. I, I have a couple of points that I wanted to bring up okay so uh, before I even define replicant uh, this film is not a direct adaptation, but it is heavily inspired by a book by the name of Dude Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. By the, the original Dick. film. This is the, the original. This is the yes. This is film. well. This is also heavily inspired by the the book as well. 
So um, it is true. There are references yeah. to it. So it is both. It's interesting. This is both a sequel to the 1982 film, and also draws heavy inspiration from the um, original book. Yes. Um, uh, written by Philip K. Dick, um, he wrote a lot of books that dealt with um, identity, um, humanity, I, and in the in the book, the um, the disposable workforce, um, as is mentioned in, in the twenty forty nine, um, are androids. Uh, they're called Andes, and they have been developed to um, help humans in every facet of their life. Um, the replicants uh, that we see in the in the original Blade Runner and in this film are genetically engineered um, beings. They're 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 not called humans but they are uh you know genetically engineered humanoids so they're not like so if you think of like data from star right. trek next generation you know they they've kind of opened him up a couple times in in episodes and you you know there's there's electronics and things like that a yeah. replicant is 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 if you were to look at a replicant you're basically looking at a human inside and out correct yes, correct so they're but they have been genetically engineered to look you know to to be that way yes but they are not human right right so they are uh the way that i that that i think of it is um they're they're, uh, well they're synthetic they're a synthetic biological version of humans um they don't have mechanical parts although the way that i like to think about it is that uh the book itself like i said mentions how um these are androids and the the two films talk about replicants being synthetic humans um i almost like to think that the book is um kind of a prequel to the 1982 film Mm -hmm. they take they take place in worlds that are very similar um uh, they both suffer from ecological um disasters which we'll get into that a little bit later um but I think that before I would think that before humanity starts to genetically engineer humans and just mass produce them or uh, some sort of humanoid beings and, and mass produce them, I would think that that um, is, they would start off uh, where we are right now, which is creating AI, um, creating humanoid robots, androids, so on and so forth, and then eventually that kind of evolved into creating a kind of a uh, flesh machine hybrid which then eventually um evolved into replicants so i like to think of the book as like a prequel yeah it's a that's a good point yeah. obviously that that kind of progression of uh progression of production you yes. know is poses poses many problems for for society right you know so i did want to i did want to point out a couple of things that um in that first scene with uh with Kay and sapper and sapper's uh home um, it, it is revealed that Kay is a replicant. Right. Um, but I would argue that it's actually revealed a little bit earlier in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, much like the original Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049 opens up with a, with an open, with an opening text. Yeah. Um, and there, the word replicants appears in red while everything else is in white. And at the mm-hmm. very end of that text, the word Blade Runner appears in, in text, in red. Yeah. And then when everything, when the text fades away, replicants and blade runner are left up on screen for about an, an additional second mm-hmm. as yeah. to suggest that 
replicants are blade or blade runners are replicants right yeah. um, so that's one thing also when we see k for the first time uh, we you know we see the sp- the spinner fly by and then it cuts into the into the spinner mm-hmm. and he's he's asleep but the way that he wakes up it, it, it's almost mechanical where it's mm-hmm. kind of like he he's like a device that he put himself to in sleep mode and then yeah. and then woke up um and also if you look closely you can actually see his his serial number and his and his picture in the spinner as well so that's yeah. that's a subtle hint that he's he is a replicant before they even say that yeah they don't have to i, I love the fact that in the film they don't spell things out uh, to the audience the audience can pick up um on, on things by themselves so like you said like his his image on the little screen um is reminiscent to how replicants were shown in the 82 film kind of uh just this bare image of um what looks like it's kind of equivalent to um if you were to look at like a standard model of a car mm-hmm. these, these are this these are the specs this is what it would look um as a standard standard model um so you know very flat picture um would you say almost like a airport photo uh, i'm sorry would you say it almost looks like a passport photo? It's like passport it's... photo, ID photo, anything like that. Yeah. One thing you said I thought was very important was the fact that this this film and and, and Blade and the original Blade Runner do not force feed information to the audience. You know, mm-hmm. it really trusts its audience to to be able to learn things themselves, pick up things themselves. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that's a reflection of the director Denis Villeneuve, which we you know I should have mentioned this earlier. You know, Denis Villeneuve, uh, a very uh acclaimed talented just just amazing director um director of such films as prisoner and sicario i'm sorry arrival. prisoners sicario arrival and obviously blade runner 2049 um and also ridley scott who directed the original film you know i i, I think what you said was a reflection of of them as filmmakers they they really give give to the you know they don't give too much to the audience they give just enough but leave certain things open where they can interpret certain things for themselves, which I think mm-hmm. is, you know, part of why people discuss films after watching it, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's part of why what makes it important. Yeah, and the, the entire environment kind of speaks to the audience. Nobody has to, nobody has to tell you that, um, you know, the environment uh, has uh, kind of... Uh, uh, gone down has has no, nobody has to tell you that the environment has declined really um nobody has to spell out that um you know the society has changed you see that it's a multicultural society you see that there's a multi- a multitude of languages being spoken and you see that it's constantly raining and snowing and it's uh any sunlight that you see is is uh artificial well it looks it looks heavily filtered through this thick smog. Oh yeah, so you're referring to the the first scene in, in Sapper's Sapper's house, yeah. you know, and mm-hmm. then uh, a couple of those scenes, yeah, and then I, the artificial light that I was referring to was in Wallace's yeah and building, that's, and that's specific too. That I like that 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 uh, Wallace's sunlight and sun um, that we see is is uh, you know inside of his building is the most luminescent and the rest of the city is in constant this constant darkness that adds to this kind of um this dirty 
uh, feeling of, of, of the city kind well, of it's very polluted. lived in. Yeah, it's, it's very extremely lived in. Lived in. Mm-hmm. Also, um, you know, the the rain in the original film was a reflection of Ridley Scott's upbringing in London. Mm-hmm. And the snow is important to Denis Villeneuve when he grew up in Montreal. So he mm-hmm. knew when he made this film, he wanted it to snow. So obviously the film takes place in Los Angeles and California where it typically does not snow. But to kind of explain that there are there are several uh short films that they they premiered before blade runner 2049 came out to explain that you know they call it the blackout Mm -hmm. you know basically the entire world infrastructure and and the climate uh went berserk so that's why not only because of denis villeneuve but because you know to explain that they created those those short films in theory we could do a a full podcast on that you know but i you know, anyone it's listening, I definitely I, I recommend um, watching those short films before watching Blade Runner 2049. Also, you know, watching the original film is extremely helpful. It's a question I get a lot is, do I need to see the original to, to watch Blade Runner 2049? I would say no, not necessarily. It does stand on its own. It, it feels like a different, you know, its own film. However, I think you would appreciate it more if you were to watch the original film and also yeah. these, these three short films to really fill in some of those gaps. Yeah, it's like, um, not like you have to. It sounds like we're we're telling you to do homework bef- before, uh, b- before watching a film. It's preparatory, but it's not necessary. Yeah, I agree. So it stands on its own very well. It's my God, it's gorgeous, just absolutely gorgeous to watch. If one were to read the book, um, and I did it a little while back, um, what happened was that there was another world war, uh, World War Terminus, um which uh, due to um, all of the destruction from the war and all the um, nuclear weapons um, um, that were uh, launched, um, it, created, uh, it created the environmental uh, uh, disaster uh, because of that. So there was a lot of destruction and there was a lot of radiation uh, from, from that war. Um, uh, and it, they noted it in the book that the first creatures, the first natural animals that uh, died were actually owls. So for one, for someone who read the book, when you're watching the 82 film... Um, and Tyrell's in ty- a- yeah, owl. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah and, and Rachel said, do you like our owl? Mm-hmm. And Deckard asks, um, is it real? Um, does he ask that? He does uh, ask He that. does, and she, she says... Uh, or does he ask if it's... Ex- I know she says it's expensive. She it's says exp- very. Very, right. So it's very expensive. Uh, I, uh, so in the book, um, real animals were very hard to come by. They were very expensive. And that's that's actually referenced in 2049. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll, we'll hit on that later. Yep, yep. Um, and so in, 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 20, in 2049, um, they seem to hit a little bit they seem to hint at both. So when we're talking about Las Vegas and there is in Las Vegas is, uh, you know, entirely radioactive. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but they, but KC's that there are, uh, bees living there. Um, it kind of makes, makes me think back to the book, but it also makes me think back to, uh, just the kind of the environmental problems that, uh, are, we're dealing with right now because 
uh, we're told that um, there's a dec decrease in the bee population. Now, are we just to assume that they are real bees, or are they See, replicants? So that's that's I kind of saw them as replicants, but I th that's the thing. You nobody can tell the difference, and it seems like everything is Wallace made. Mm -hmm. So I think at some point it already crossed that line of it doesn't really matter. They can be uh, animals and 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 replicants um, can act exactly like the original real thing, maybe even better. And because the bees survive in radiation, where in that radiation where nothing is supposed to survive, uh, it makes me think even more that that they're not real. So yeah, no, that's a good point. You know, because you could also say the same same thing about Deckard. Mm -hmm. who's in Las, Las Vegas, and we'll get to that, and also his dog. Yeah, yeah. Um, One last note about the radiation there mm -hmm. that I noticed, uh, uh, and this is this is in a, just a little funny reference. Um, I looked up, because uh, I didn't quite know exactly what a dirty mm -hmm. bomb was. They mentioned that um, the, uh, the radioactivity in the in Las Vegas is due to uh, um, testing of dirty bombs, mm -hmm. right? And that uh, the area is heavily laced with tritium. Do you know mm -hmm. of any other film that, that mentioned how uh, tritium a lot? Tritium. It's probably something you like and I'm not... Oh, I, it's, I'm it's, a, it's a film that when I first saw it at my very young age, I loved it for years. It better not be Little Nicky. It's not Little Nicky. <laughs> it's not Little Nicky. No. But uh, uh, I'll, I'll give you a hint. It's a sequel. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a very valuable substance that is being used by a man with mechanical arms. You want another hint? Yeah. Crap, crap, mega crap. Spider-Man 2. Spider-Man 2. It is the substance that is being used to um, power the sun, I believe. Oh. The, this fake sun. Yeah. That's this uh, generator. So tritium, what it is, is an isotope of hydrogen. Because hydrogen is usually just a proton with an electron around mm -hmm. it. And uh, in this case, this is a hydrogen proton um, with a neutron and then a second neutron. And because of that, you'll have... Uh, an isotope basically means that you have in the nucleus uh, of, of the atom, you have um, the same amount of protons as any other, um, um, uh, you know, any other atom of the element uh, has, but it has a different amount of neutrons. That's, that's all that is. But uh, I just, uh, I, 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 was, I was watching it last time I was, I was watching it, like, Trudy, and that sounds so familiar. And then I was like, oh, it's Spider-Man 2. It's the valuable, mm -hmm. valuable substance. The, the, of the best of the Spider-Man films, I think we can agree mm -hmm. on that yeah. one. Mm -hmm. So you, you did mention something when we were talking about the bees. You know, you mentioned that, you know, we're, I think we are, we're to assume that pretty much everything is, is a Wallace design. And mm -hmm. kind of going back to the original scene with uh, the first scene with Sapper, um, Kay asks him, you know, mm -hmm. what, you know, what's, what's he farm? And he, you know, puts a, grabs a little bowl and puts some, look like maggots or something maggots or maybe it's it, they look almost like caterpillars yeah but yeah some sort he of larva a, but he said yeah some sort of larva he said it was a, a protein farm wallace design mm -hmm. so that kind of and you'll see later in the film pretty much everything's got wallace's 
stamp on it, his yeah. logo. Mm-hmm. So another thing I wanted to point out on kind of a meta level mm-hmm. was the the first line of the film is Kay, you know, when, when Sapper walks into his, his house and Kay's already just sitting there and the you know the camera pushes in to reveal Kay just sitting there in shadow, which is it's a really nice shot. Um, the first line of the entire film is, I hope you don't mind me taking the liberty. I was careful not to track in any dirt. You know, that's not just the first line of the film. That is that is the writers out of the filmmakers saying, hey, you know, we're going to we're, we're I hope you don't mind. We're, we're coming back into this universe, mm-hmm. but we've been very thoughtful about what we're going to do with it. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they've been very thoughtful. Um, just watching this film, you'll see that this was not taken lightly. You know, Denis mm-hmm. Villeneuve knew the, the immense pressure it was to to try and follow up a film that is that didn't do well originally and became, you know had a cult following and is now considered you know a science fiction classic some people consider it the best science fiction film ever made mm-hmm. he knew the pressure of that and i think that line speaks louder than just being k's first line mm-hmm. yeah you're right so circling back to the grave underneath the tree that uh k discovers uh when he brought it brings it back to the crime lab it looks like it looks like some sort of yeah crime ad- lab and L- lapd crime lab yeah yeah um we find that there's actually a serial number um kind of etched in the bones uh it looks like it, he's looking at a cross section of the bones so it almost implies as if um the way that the serial number is uh for lack of a better word stamped in is kind of this um uh kind of like inside the bone itself so it's not on the outside it's not a stamp it's just kind of part of the uh um, kind of um genetically uh engineered um bone design Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right yeah and it's worth noting so if you look closely um the the serial number is n7 faa 52318 now fans of the original film might pick that up and be able to decipher it. So here's here's what we were able to decipher. Um, the N7 is going to stand for Nexus 7. Mm-hmm. So if you remember the original film, those those replicants were Nexus 6 replicants. Mm-hmm. Um, this, was a, this was a Nexus 7. F is going to stand for female. Mm-hmm. And then the AA is going to stand for the mental capacity and the physical capacity. Mm-hmm. Or it's either physical and the mental or mental and physical. And then the five two three one eight. That's that's this replicant's birth date. Mm-hmm. So um, we do find out later on that this is Rachel from the original film, the mm-hmm. replicant from the original film, who right. had you know Harrison Ford's love interest, um, and that you know she gave birth to a a, a child, a mm-hmm. child replicant. Now I know we were we were wondering like, wait, so why would she be? We get it. She's a mental. Mm-hmm. Why would she be a physical? And then it kind of it came to us. Well. Obviously, she would need to be a physical because she would have to give birth. Right. So she would need to be strong enough to give birth. But we find out that she had to have an emergency C-section, and even that was not enough to save her. Yeah. Well, so I, I take that as because she was kind of an experimental. The yeah. Nexus 7 was an experimental. Yeah. It, it almost seemed like it might have been over-design um, in the sense of, you know, you make certain making her too real, making her too strong in some in some ways. So, um, 
you know, maybe there was some, still something lacking that, uh, you know, her, uh, they, they were saying that her hips were too narrow mm-hmm. um, um, and she couldn't give birth. But a m- majority of women give birth successfully. And in, in, his, in history, uh, women gave birth successfully naturally. So uh, it's maybe part of the issue was that, um, you know, it's possible maybe the first replicants that were uh, created were maybe men. And that it was—it's harder to create a woman because there are um, different um, different things that have to be incorporated here. Not just uh, you know body shape and all that, mm. but you know uh, pregnancy, giving birth. There's a lot of different chemical hormonal reactions that go on, so that's very difficult um, <clears throat> to um, to to engineer. So uh, she was experimental, but she still wasn't finished as a an ideal uh, female uh, um, replicant in terms of being able to bear children and such and living through it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. So Kay, Kay has a a companion or a a friend, mm-hmm. a partner. Want, a partner. Mm-hmm. Do you want to uh, you know maybe talk about that a little bit? So the uh, partner, the love interest, um, is a hologram by the name of Joy, and it was revealed very uh, cleverly. I agree. I actually, I'll be honest with you, I didn't know it was a hologram until we were in the theater watching the movie. I Mm -hmm. thought for sure in the previews, because, you know, we watched the trailer a million times. You watched the trailer a million times. I watched the trailer a million times. times. I got the gist. (laughs) I thought for sure that she was just a, a replicant another replicant yeah. like a like a pleasure model or something yeah mm-hmm. that's exactly what i thought uh you don't see holograms in the 82 film no no so we're all. assuming that that was a technology that was uh crafted within that 30 year time span yeah yeah um and uh, it's it kind of feeds into this whole theme of uh where where we a lot of the times we find uh this theme of um a facade in uh in people's lives in the film in what beauty is uh, what truth is there's this layer of facade so joy is a prime example of that mm-hmm. she is a wallace product um that uh is basically she's I mean, she can't serve as a pleasure model uh, replicant, but she can serve as um, an, an emotional, because um, kind of an emotional version of a pleasure model. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, she's not physical, so she uh, she will tell you everything that you want to hear. She will, you know, everything you want to see. That's 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 her um, tagline. That's, that's her tagline. It's part of her brand. That's yeah. Um, so, but in the end, in order to make this product successful, you have to delude yourself into believing that she actually cares about your well-being, that she actually likes the same things that you like, and that she actually believes everything that you believe. I think Kay does believe that because mm-hmm. um, yeah, they're, they're playing this role, obviously, like mm-hmm. when he gets when he gets into the apartment for the first time. 
you know, it, it, he's kind of playing this role and she brings out the food and was, you know, it brings out dinner and says like bon appetit and she's dressed, you know, in like 1950s homemaker, homemaker. Um, but, you know, and I think we'll touch on this, but I do think that there is definitely some sort of evolution to that relationship that happens throughout the film that ultimately makes that loss that we'll touch on more impactful Mm -hmm. if that makes sense right so um the way that i interpreted joy she's a glorified alexa in the sense that she will come with us with standard settings and then she will listen to you and then she will adjust um you know adjust uh, herself to you mm-hmm. uh, so the joy that you are um you know that that you have in your place is not going to be the same joy that is in you know that is with another guy right right, right. so um but again it's still a facade she the programming is 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 very um high level um ai uh but at this but still she is part of this facade she is part of what i think um you know humans do when something looks human um even remotely they will kind of um anthropomorphize it yeah um so we look at um, asimo right mm-hmm. and we're like oh well it's it's a cute little robot it looks like a little guy but if you take all that apart, I mean, it's still machinery in there. There's yeah. not a person in there. There's not a human in there. There's not a, it, there's a designed, um, you know, system in there. Well, with Joy, there's there's nothing to take apart. You know, it's yeah. She's she literally, if you look at her character, she's literally hollow. You mm-hmm. know, you could see right through her. Yeah. Um, and that's there's a there's a line that's later in the film that, uh, you know, that basically puts her down where she says, yep. you know. There's not as much there as you think, as you basically, think, yeah. is, what, is what she's told. Um, and it's interesting. Who tells her that? So, the well, who tells her that is a, is a replicant. Is a so replicant, yeah. you basically, you know, I know we could probably do an entire podcast on this alone, but you have these kind of, this social hierarchy, mm-hmm. you know, where you have not just humans, but you have rich humans like Wallace, mm-hmm. and then you have poor humans. Mm-hmm who we see in BB's bar later in the film. Mm-hmm. And that, and uh, just on, just generally on, on the street, kind of on the like street, yeah. general so marketplace. On the surface, on yeah. On the surface, yeah. And then, you know, then you have you have replicants. Mm-hmm. And then I would put, even put replicants above Blade Runners because Blade Runners yeah. are replicants who are hunting other replicants. replicants. Yeah. And then you have holograms. Yeah. You know, even even lower. So, yeah, it's 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 there's there's so many layers there yeah for, you know a, to think about it's um you know it's really interesting yeah it's a multicast system and the thing that is fascinating about that is that um the tagline is more human than human but it rings true even more when you think about well replicants they're more human than human but they're also just as jealous mm-hmm. um they think highly of themselves. Um, they're just as intelligent, sometimes more intelligent, it seems, than, than other humans. And they'll discriminate. They'll discriminate just like, just like humans do. Mm-hmm. Um, they, um, you know, they, 
I wouldn't say even discriminate. They just will think lowly of of someone, uh, in this case, an AI that they don't recognize as um, a sentient being, and they're not. Joy is not sentient, but there, I can see. Let's say Blade Runner three thousand and fifty, right? I can see an evolution of AI to the point where they are sentient, where they their program becomes developed more and more, and we have kind of a um, EMH hologram going on like we had in Star Trek Voyager, mm-hmm. where they are independent thinkers. Uh, holograms um, have their own um, joys, their own sorrows, their own interests, um, and they can uh, th- think about, uh, you know, uh, think for themselves and, you know, uh, they don't have to follow orders of other people. Um, and so I can see the events of this film happening, let's say, 100 years or 500 years later, mm-hmm. where um, now, you know, in this film, replicants are trying to prove that they deserve rights as um, citizens on equal footing as regular humans. Um, and I can, uh, I can, I can see holograms in 500 years doing the same thing. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. It becomes a cycle. It becomes yeah. a cycle that every time that you make something to service yourself and they evolve to become just as good as you, that you'll have this tension and rebellion going on. Because you've never seen a miracle. So real quick, I wanted to mention that in Kay's kitchen, he has uh, square tiles behind his like kind of stove area mm-hmm. that are designed just like Deckard's apartment from the first film. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's, that's really cool that they uh, kind of make that reference. It, it seems like a very similar um, kind of circumstance that both of the characters had. They're in their own little tiny apartments, almost like a bachelor Well, De- apartment? Deckard's apartment was, was a bit bigger. Oh, yeah, it was just right. so kind of dark, yeah. and he had a lot of stuff in there. Mm-hmm. But Kay's apartment is literally just a, it's like a studio apartment. It's one Mm-hmm. single room but that's kind of the, the a reflection of his social class but the feeling is still similar would mm-hmm. you say? yeah decker just had much more stuff and he yeah. had a piano and mm-hmm. Kay's just got a much smaller spot but mm-hmm. he's got he's got basically nothing in it and mm-hmm. he's got one of those murphy bed i think is what it's called murphy bed? okay yeah so he's basically got one of those so he's basically living in a cell yeah yeah, yeah it, it, and that's that's funny that you mentioned that because his door to his apartment is kind of like a, it's got like a like a huge lock on it. It almost feels yeah. like a like a steel prison. cell prison door or mm-hmm. something like that. And obviously, you know, there's a it says you know f off Skinner on the front, which mm-hmm. is a you know a, a, der- a derogatory term for uh, a replicant mm-hmm. skin job or Skinner, which they used in the first film as well. They did, yes. Yeah, and uh, it's because again they look on. They look like everybody else on the outside. Yeah. That why? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but, but are mm-hmm. superior in some ways, you know. So right. it's there's that resentment from the human aspect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's resentment and uh, it's kind of would you say it's also fear? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. After Kay comes back from dealing with Sapper. Um, he goes through a psychiatric analysis mm-hmm. and he has to recite parts of a poem, which is later referenced when he's talking with Joy. 
They talk about a book called Pale Fire mm-hmm. um, by Nabokov. And this book is something that, I mean, I took a read of it. I took a pass at it. And at first I thought, okay, it's a novel. Um, it's going to be it's going to mention these couple of lines. And what I discovered is that it's a poem of four cantos inside of a commentary with a foreword by not Nabokov, by, by a fictional um, academic. Mm-hmm. So you have Nabokov who wrote the novel and you have this commentator who's commentating on uh, the poem who was written by somebody else. So this like layer within layer. So the part of the poem that he's reciting um, is kind of a version of this poem. So um, a sort of just a little piece of it. Give me now your full attention. I can't tell you how I knew, but I did know that I had crossed the border. Everything I loved was lost, but no aorta could report regret. A son of rubber was convulsed and set, and blood-black nothingness began to spin, a system of cells interlinked within, cells interlinked within cells interlinked within one stem, and dreadfully distinct against the dark, a tall white fountain played. The way that the poem is written um, actually breaks down the lines uh, differently than the way that Kay recites them, but no matter... Um, Mm -hmm. that is part of his psych test and you could tell that they're measuring, um, his, um, um, hormone levels, his neuroreceptor levels, um, his, uh, skin, um, kind of reactions and, um, his, um, uh, voice tone reactions. Mm -hmm. They're looking at, uh, even like the way that the blood is flowing in the neck. So they're looking for stressors. What's interesting about the poem is that you could just take it, uh, you know, you know, face value, he's just saying a couple of lines. Um, but what's interesting is that Kay had to learn this. And it's possible that uh, this book is given as a manual to all replicants. Just learn these lines. This is what you're going to be tested on. But it looks like he actually does read the book. He's trying to, we, we find out later, as Deckard said, hey, it reads. Um, he does try to understand the world around him. He does try to understand exactly what's being put put in front of him instead of just taking it blindly. Which I think is really important to bring up because when Kay eventually believes that he is the replicant child, mm-hmm. you know, so that does happen. I think that's important because you could say, well, you know, he's he's acting this way because he's not a replicant. He's mm-hmm. something else. Right. You know? Right. Yep. And the the interesting thing about the poem, if if we were just to look at the poem and not the commentary and not the foreword, which uh, uh, could be dry for some people, but I think it, it can grow on you once you read it again and again and kind of get the whole picture. It's definitely a, a unique way of writing a novel. Um, is that the narrator of the poem, um, what he's saying is that he has a heart attack. Um, or has some sort of um, spell, mm-hmm. and he falls unconscious, and he believes that he died mo- momentarily, and he is traveling into the afterlife, and he sees uh, a tall white fountain in his afterlife, and then he snaps back to life. 
And then he's reading a newspaper and he sees that there is um, an anecdote uh, from a woman that was technically dead on the hospital bed for also momentarily and then comes back to life. And she says, um, I saw a white fountain. And so they have similar visions. And so he believes that because two people share a similar vision, they went to the same place, there was an afterlife after all. And then unfortunately, what he discovers is that, that there was actually a mistake. He was afraid he had mislaid her notes. He took his article from a steel file. It's accurate. I have not changed her style. There is one misprint, not that it matters much. Mountain, not fountain, the majestic touch. So what he believed was actually an account of the afterlife that he had experienced as well was a misunderstanding. And, uh, and so now the, uh, the, the, the meaning behind his vision is um, kind, of, kind of falls apart, becomes uh, empty. It's very reminiscent um, to what Kay experiences. Mm -hmm. So can you, uh, can you talk more about that? Yeah, so... What is his vision? So what Kay is experiencing, um, and he's asked by his, his superior officer, uh, Lieutenant Joshi, to describe a, a memory, mm -hmm. which he believes is fake because mm -hmm. replicants have implanted memories. So he recounts the story of when he was a child in an orphanage with other boys. He had a toy horse. Mm -hmm. that he that it was his you know and and the other boys were trying to take it away from him so he hid it in this in a furnace mm -hmm. um and they they beat him up to 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 tell him where it was but he he didn't mm -hmm. so was there anything specifically special about that horse besides that it was made of wood which we'll come back to later so the one thing that he doesn't tell uh lieutenant joshi um that he has told joy many many times mm -hmm. is that there is a date inscribed on the f uh, under the horse mm -hmm. 6 10 21 mm -hmm. which happens to be the same exact date that he finds at the dead tree at sappers mm -hmm. which which just strikes this 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 memory yeah even you know again and that date kind of gives him the hint the idea that hey wait a minute so these two dates coincide just like there's a fountain and a mountain and uh, it's hinting that maybe that's pointing towards a truth um, that he's not maybe who he thinks he is. Exactly. Right. So just going back to that wooden, that toy wooden horse again, mm -hmm. um, you know, let's, let's kind of take a step back. Kay visits Wallace's world headquarters, which if you, when you watch, when you see it for the first time in the film, it actually engulfs the original Tyrell building, which oh, yeah. in the original film was so impressive, but this is even just just so much more massive. Mm -hmm. He gets to Wallace's Wallace's headquarters. He's he's in the pretty much the reception area and you notice there's this everything's kind of dark except for this this bright yellow light. Mm -hmm. Um I did want to touch on that just a little bit that the color yellow in this film is extremely important. Anytime the color yellow appears, mm -hmm. Kay is actually receiving some sort of information that progresses the story forward. So mm -hmm. if we just to kind of take a step back to when he was at Sappers, Sappers kind of foyer is is yellow, is a bright yellow, and also mm -hmm. the the flower next to the tree is is yellow, and mm -hmm. that's where he 
eventually finds the 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 grave mm-hmm. and then at at wallace's headquarters that's that's what gets him started because he has the the sample which is the hair that he gives to the the wallace receptionist guy mm-hmm. and it that reveals the the memory sphere that he eventually finds out the identity of this replicant that he that was in the grave yep which ends up being rachel of course yep the other thing that we want to mention about the light is that and this is just if in the film in general if there there is a current living artist by the name of james terrell and he is described as a light and space artist mm-hmm. we were lucky enough to see his exhibit at the museum of contemporary art um yes uh mass mocha mass mocha in, in uh north adams yes massachusetts mm-hmm. so uh he creates these beautiful I could, I could say light atmospheres and light uh, uh, sculptures. Yeah. Some of his stuff is also kind of like holographic. So if you ever wanted to um, experience parts of Blade Runner kind of for yourself and just kind of bathe in, in that kind of atmosphere and light for just even five minutes, um, if you find one of his exhibits, it's definitely... Um, worth seeing and uh just just a brief google search you you'd be amazed at what what this guy um has done absolutely Mm -hmm. yep so we we meet wallace for the first time Mm -hmm. and his his uh his go-to a replicant her name being love Mm -hmm. l-u-v when when love meets k for the first time he's he's pretty surprised that she has a name he he says uh, he named you, mm-hmm. and but she doesn't really respond to that. Mm-hmm. Um, we we notice that she's she's got quite an interesting relationship to uh, with Wallace um, when we see this this new replicant model being quote unquote born for the first time. Yeah, um, which is kind of this disturbing, it's basically spit out of a plastic bag kind of birth. Well, I mean. If you were to look at human births, those are <laughs> those those are pretty violent as well. So it's it's almost like you know uh, a abstract visual representation of a of a human birth. Um, but uh, you're right; it does it's 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 it is slightly d- disturbing in the sense that um, you know you're seeing this weak creature trying to stand like like this newborn horse mm-hmm. trying to stand up. Oh, I believe is the proper mm-hmm. term for a little horse. Um, cause she, she's shaking. She doesn't know who, who the heck she is even. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She has a, a newborn's mind, but a full, uh, grown woman's body. Yeah. And that's disturbing on multiple levels there. You're supposed to have already a mature developed mind inside a developed body. Yeah. Well, I yeah. think even the character of love is, is kind of a, if you look at her character throughout the film, she is, she looks like a, you know, an adult woman, mm-hmm. but she's clearly a child. It's. It's pretty obvious the way that she she talks and um, the way she interacts with with humans as well as as Kay. Um, you know, the last line that she has in the film or one of the last lines is "I'm the best one." Mm-hmm. You know, I, you're referring to being the best model. You know, she's very yeah. close to Wallace. Yeah, there's kind know. of this like sibling rivalry yeah. between her and different models. Uh, and... Different models, yeah. yeah. And yet she talks sophisticated uh, in a. She talks in a sophisticated manner when she says, "Oh, well, Mr. Wallace revivified the technology," and and she 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 
talks very softly and yeah and kind of but like, she still has those moments of yeah, where this up. child comes out mm-hmm. you know yeah. we'll talk about that when she uh spoiler you know she kills lieutenant joshi mm-hmm. later in the film yep so just going back to yep. wallace's uh headquarters for a moment you mm-hmm. notice that what what is everything everything on the interior what is it made out of wood 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 yeah and wood we we are to, we are, we learn in this film is a an extremely valuable commodity mm-hmm. um, because later on in the film, uh, Kay tries to get the 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 small wooden horse evaluated to see where it came from, mm-hmm. and the the guy's name is Doctor Badger and basically tells him like oh with this you know I can get you a real horse yeah you're rich whatever you want I can get you off world papers I can mm-hmm. get you yeah, anything you're rich yeah exactly and that's just a tiny little piece of wood yeah. When Wallace, every inch of his interior is made out of wood. Yep, yep. And his little case with the um, little implants. Mm-hmm. Not implants, the little buttons. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're implants, the, the ocular implants, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, made out of wood. That's made out of wood. Um, the, the little, um, not little, the grand hall with the, um, um, the library-style card catalogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, all wood all wood we want to talk about you know going back um kind of going back a little retro on some things the uh short film the blackout short film Mm -hmm. kind of explains a way why so so many things are gone back to analog yeah um and this is just one of those examples of one of those tangible examples that doesn't spell out for the audience that hey we had to go back to analog because Everything, everything, everything was erased in this blackout, you know. Um, everything was digital. Everything was digital. So, it, I mean, that kind of worked. There's two two parts to that. One, the filmmakers knew that they wanted to tell a story that felt lived in. And mm-hmm. Denis Villeneuve did not want sleek, modern screens everywhere. You know, he wanted yeah. things that people could touch. So, even if you look at Lieutenant Joshi's computer screen it looks like it's like a 90s computer mm-hmm. monitor like a crt monitor mm-hmm. um just just a little i mean there's there's plenty of technologically advanced things in this film but there's yeah. also things that are that feel very grounded and yeah. analog which I, I just love i love that mix that balance between technical and futuristic and old so like sapper's uh, house when k first walks in you kind of see this like panel on the wall that's digital yeah in this really old looking house i just i just yeah. love that aesthetic it's kind of well two things on that one it's kind of where we are right now so using technology of today what would the future version of this look like mm-hmm. and so we look at uh joy's little um pen remote control i mean we have remote controls that look very similar to that um we look at even just looking at the fashion like I could, see, I saw that on the runway probably, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, a year ago or so. Just uh, the 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 clothes are not so out of this believable range. Where like I, that's so futuristic that it's it's not not kind of like a Back to the Future Part Two jump, mm-hmm. where you're like, oh my goodness, you know, there's such a culture shock there. You're looking at it and you're thinking, I could see people turning towards that fashion i could see people using this technology because they're comfortable with it now this is just a natural evolution of it so to kind of just segue using that uh that analog uh aesthetic you know the next scene k ends up going to what's called dina base 
to look for children that were born uh, on that date, 6, 10, 21. Mm-hmm. And this, this machine, if you look at it, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of this like mechanical metal looking machine with a little screen, like a little tiny screen on it and a crank. Uh, yeah, hang, a hand crank. Yeah, a hand crank. Yeah. A film student's going to look at it and know what it's inspired by. It's actually inspired by an old Moviola editing machine. That's what they used to be able to watch, view the film that they're editing mm-hmm. on. It, they would look through like a little a little viewfinder like thing. It, it looks exactly like it. It's, that's pretty cool. It, it's, so it's clearly inspired by that. That's pretty cool. But um, it's just cool that it shows how analog this, this universe still is. I want to point out that, that Joy in this scene is wearing a transparent like kind of mm-hmm. yellow jacket that's actually a nod to zora's jacket from the first film mm-hmm. just throwing that one out there but where does this lead Kay and joy um so it leads them to go to the orphanage to find more information mm-hmm. right there's definitely this kind of motif yellow can al- almost be thought of as you know um Moments of like illumination, yeah. almost, like, yeah, like a light bulb, like a light bulb, yep. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's really cool. Um, so what what does he? Uh, so what does K end up finding at that at that orphanage? Well, he finds no paper records, but he finds the wooden horse. Yep. Right. So because he's recognizing the hallway, he's recognizing this industrial. Yeah, when hallway. he's walking through, he he's not saying anything. Mm-hmm. But he's kind of stopping and looking, and then it takes you back to the memory that he was talking mm-hmm. about with Joshi, and yeah, it just kind of builds that connection. Um, and he's thinking, okay, is this is this real or is this? I thought this was an implanted memory. How can yeah. how can this place exist? Mm-hmm. So he find yeah, so he finds the he finds the horse, mm-hmm. wooden horse, and at this point he's he's convinced, okay, this this child that he's supposed to be looking for, it's him. Yeah. So. He has the vision of a horse, he, or he has the memory of a horse. He sees the horse in real life, and he sees the date on the grave. So, going back to Pale Fire, we have the narrator who sees the white fountain, and we have the woman who talks about a white fountain, or the anecdote that talks about a white mm-hmm. fountain, right? So, we haven't gotten to the, oh, it's a white mountain part of the film. So, at this point, he's convinced mm-hmm. that he's, he's, the, he's the child, but he, he, right. needs, he needs something to confirm it. He mm-hmm. hasn't quite gotten there yet, so um, Joy asks him, oh, "Well, who makes the memories?" Because he's he's convinced that this is just a uh, an implanted memory. Mm-hmm. So this leads him to Doctor Celine's laboratory, who designs memories. You know, she she's a subcontractor to to Wallace and designs memories and tells Kay that they, she's not. You know, it's illegal to use real memories. Mm-hmm. So she puts them through. They don't really explain how she does it but she's got this device that she can look into memories and, and visualize it. It begs the question, if she can read his implanted memories, right, which are programmed, I guess, during the making of this human, um, is it possible to read real memories? I mean, they never really delve, in, delve into that. Like, so if someone, if a human came in. Right, because yeah. she says, yes, someone lived this. Right. So what if a human came in and said, okay, I have this memory. Okay, think about it. All right, I'm thinking about it. And she can, can she pick a part um, and say, okay, this is a memory and I'm watching your memory. Like what, what at this point, what distinguishes? I don't, I do, I don't know. Yeah. But the way I kind of thought, saw it was if, if she knows which memories are hers that she's implanted, not her memories, but the Im- memories that she's implanted. If she's seeing something in there, I don't know if it's like a, 
if it's like she's looking at an x-ray or something if she it's either like a negative or a positive mm-hmm. so if she sees something that doesn't look familiar she's like okay that was definitely a a real memory mm-hmm. but the way that she reacts because she's also tearing up in that uh, right. scene as well yeah. tells you that there's something more on the surface which we do find out later mm-hmm. so but at this point Kay is convinced that he is it, he was convinced before now it's confirmed confirmed yep. for Kay as well as the audience that he's the child yes and I think it's worth noting that his performance up to this point has been and his performance throughout the entire film is very subdued because you know he's supposed to be this this replicant that's controlled and cool. obeys and mm-hmm. you know even keel so he lets out this scream in this moment which is the exact like midpoint of the film mm-hmm. and i think that 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 performance that that scene is so powerful be- because of how subdued his performance was mm-hmm. up to that point yeah yeah you don't even see him feel fear at any other point in the film even no. when he's shot out of the sky mm-hmm. he doesn't feel fear at any point no he's doing his job or he's following up on a lead or he's just investigating and this truth breaks him absolutely or so we thought it's a truth again he sees the print basically he saw the print he read that it, there's a white fountain there and he's like okay there's an afterlife holy crap what do i do mm-hmm. right going from that then he has the other baseline test he fails the baseline yep. Josie tells him basically you have 48 hours to get back on track or you're you know we're gonna retire you yeah and she told him to give up his gun and badge so now he's unarmed yeah he's unarmed he's unarmed so he knows that yeah if he assuming he would have to just come back for one but he's like you know i'm too far gone because they i'm not a replicant anymore he that's what he's that's what he believes that's what he believes so he can't get back to a normal state of mind there's no way so let's let's just talk about this this three-way scene let's just go dive right into it okay First of all, from a from a visual standpoint, mm-hmm. it's probably the most impressive love scene in the history of film. I mean, first of all, it's not it's not overly gratuitous or anything it's not like that. It's in anything, yeah. it's very um, it's very thoughtful, very slow moving, um, and just visually, just really really impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you know this, but they actually they filmed each actress separately. Mm-hmm. And kind of had them try and match their movements by looking at an iPad. Huh. And then, you know, in, in post, they, they overlaid them. So it was almost mm-hmm. like a like an old school just double exposure. Oh. Now, there was some, some trickery there, some visual trickery to make them look, at least, I'm sorry, make uh, Ana de Armas, who plays Joy, to make her look more hollow. Mm-hmm. It's not as simple as just filming her on a, on a background plate and then dropping her opacity. Mm-hmm her look is specific to where it's kind of like the front of her is yeah is semi-transparent and then but you can also kind of see the back of like she has depth that you just can't get just from filming someone and then lowering the opacity yeah and it seems like when you're looking at it it's almost like a invisible man moment kind of where Mm -hmm. you see the front of her dress and then you see the back of the dress exactly you see but you don't see a body yeah exactly exactly and i think what really uh makes this scene work is the fact that the two actresses are trying to mimic each other's uh movements Mm -hmm. and obviously there's no way unless you did it all in in visual effects 
that it's going to be 100% in sync Mm -hmm. perfectly. And I think that imperfection is what makes it work Mm -hmm. because when you'll notice that, so this, this, uh, this, uh, replicant Mariette played by Mackenzie Davis and joy are trying to sync up to give Kay this physical experience Mm -hmm. while also being joy. Yeah. Um, but at some point, it looks like there's an entirely different person there, not... It's a Neelix. There's a Neelix moment yeah. there where you look in both and you're like, Tuvix, oh. you mean? Tuvix. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. There's a Tuvix moment. Tuvix, yeah. Like, oh, Referring man. to the Star Trek Voyager episode. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, there's going to be some more of these along the this, this series. Just, just incredible. Yeah. It's just an incredible scene. So essentially, this this scene is, it's it's Kay losing his virginity. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's 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 this weird. It's this weird thing of, uh, him who is you know only a couple years old. Joy is not even real, mm-hmm. and Marionette, who is an experienced pleasure model. It's this sort of like mix of. I think it's Mariette. Oh, I'm sorry, Mariette. Mariette, who's this pleasure model, is this mix of these three sentient beings just trying to make things work because, you know, Joy is not physical. Mackenzie Davis' character doesn't have the relationship with Kay, um, but they try to make it work, and it's this. Again, it's, it comes back to this um, facade uh, kind of theme. You know, what is actually going on here? Uh, it's... And Kay is really... Yeah. He's resistant to it at first. Yeah, because he's weirded out by because, it too. But you know, he has who, no other choice. Who, who, you know, who set this up? Was it was it Joy? Was it Mariette? You know, I, I mean, I, I, I have in my research, I've read that, you know, that's up kind of up for debate. I, I, I think joy set it up yeah it, the way that she talks about it it's uh you know she said oh i could tell that you liked her so because like, oh, okay, also somehow the k's it. apartment door is open mm-hmm. when he walks in she walks in right after him yeah yeah so there was a there was also a suggestion that possibly he set this up as well like to just 100 percent completely like within this game that they're playing mm-hmm. this and facade yeah and that's the thing yeah they're they are pretending like they have to pretend that joy has a body um and uh, you know mackenzie davis character um has to pretend just like she does with the, all the other yeah. clients that she's interested in yeah. them and, and it's it's really it's, important that you mm-hmm. bring up that that they are pretending mm-hmm. because later on in the film there is a scene that this will become very important. The mm-hmm. fact that he, this whole pretend relationship, we'll get to that. So immediately after this, Kay knows that okay, he's he. They're gonna come looking for him, so they have mm-hmm. to leave. So they this takes them to we we had just previously mentioned Doctor Badger, where he mm-hmm. tries to get the he's trying to find out where the the horse came from. Yep. Um. So he takes it there, and he's he's determining where you know based off the the 
chemical the tritium the yeah so he finds that there's there's tritium um and i will say if you look closely at the horse in that scene with dr badger you'll notice that the the head of the horse has like a little raised section where oh, there would have been a horn a horn <laughs> Okay. So this was not originally a, a toy horse. This was a toy unicorn. Mm-hmm. And obviously unicorn being a, a major motif in the first film. Mm-hmm. So just another nod and respect for for the original source material. Yep. I mean, the 82 film also, um, I mean, again, Pale Fire exists in this film for a reason. Mm-hmm. And just like the wooden horse... Um, is equivalent to the white fountain mm-hmm. um the 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 unicorn um is the the white fountain in the in the first film yes so um it's like it's basically saying okay these two different people have the same vision does that point to a singular truth mm-hmm. that's the question is that confirmation of a singular truth um in the first film people have debated this for a long time already you know whether it does confirm um, certain truths about Deckard and the nature of people. The point is, and the point I think also in the book and in, in the Pale Fire book is that singular truths um, can be out there, but in the end, having the discussion, having the ability to think for yourself and say, okay, even if there is evidence, you know, that doesn't prove one thing one way or another i'll believe moving forward and even if i'm discouraged in one way or another there is something that i can give myself purpose for yeah and that that's kind of the whole is deckard a replicant or -hmm. not in a nutshell it's not about the answer it's about the question it's about the question you know about the discussion and i'm so glad that and i know denis Villeneuve was was asked about this before this film was released or was is deckard a replicant is he not a replicant? Mm-hmm. He said, "Don't worry, I'll take care of it." And he did. He did. You know, we'll we'll talk about this. So, the horse leads leads Kay and Joy to Las Vegas, mm-hmm. where he stumbles into this old casino. Mm-hmm. It actually says vintage casino. Vintage casino. And uh, finds uh, Deckard. Mm-hmm. You know, Harrison Ford. So I think we're we're a little over two hours into the film, and we finally you know see harrison ford and and up to this point i mean we are led to believe as much as the protagonist that not only is he a um a replicant child born from a replicant mother but that he's deckard's son yep he looks like him he did his job he has he struggles uh with relationships just like deckard struggles with relationships um, he has the same kitchen somehow. Like he, he seems yeah. to kind of copy his life mm-hmm. more or less. Um, and he, you know, yeah, he's a loner. You know, uh, he uh, he's also about the same age or looking about the same yeah. age as in the original film. Um, so we're more convinced even before, uh, you know, Casey's, uh, Deckard, uh, because does Kate even know what Deckard look, looks like? No. So at that point, no. up to that point, he had only ever heard his voice through the mm-hmm. memory sphere. Yeah. So when they do meet, you know, Deckard is is pretty skeptical of his intentions mm-hmm. and actually attacks him because he knows he knows what he is. He is a Blade Runner. They 
yeah. Blade Runners take in people and they will yeah, either kill them on the spot. There or, is no, yeah. they, you know, there is no uh, compromise. It's, mm-hmm. you know, retirement or nothing. Right. Yeah. So it's either, what, what is it that that case says in the very beginning to Sapper? Well, so wanna, Sapper says, yeah. uh, you know, oh, you, you want to take me in? And he says, if, if that's an option, I would much prefer that to the alternative. Right. So they either take him in downtown and and give him the give him a test or or, or just look you know just look in the eye. They don't need the voice voice yeah. comp test at this point. But it, but if if a replicant is human or or is like a human or more human than human, mm-hmm. there's no way. And just like a human, like you're not going to just give up. Like if your survival's yeah. on the line, you're going to. You have a fight or flight. So yeah, yeah, fight or flight defense. And so even though Case has that line, he knows that something's something's about to happen yeah right now right after the the 1982 film story um had ended he and rachel were hunted so Mm -hmm. at this point he's assuming that he was finally found and that he's going to be either interrogated or killed on the spot um or you know interrogated then killed whatever or maybe even asked about the child because he had drained for quite like because he had he had a major role in that Mm -hmm. and his was to basically leave them on their own Mm -hmm. you know and he says that great line you know sometimes to love someone you have to be a stranger Mm -hmm. because their his presence would have been a danger yes yeah Mm -hmm. yeah you have to make this child anonymous no parentage uh nothing like that yeah so that does lead love to las vegas Mm -hmm. where they take deckard and that's the thing uh they will know k's location at all times they knew k's location when he was right outside stellene's lab um and this kind of goes back to k basically being like a police dog right well did he's a he is a he is a canine in a sort did they know so the LAPD knew Kay's location at all times, right. but did Walt, did Love? I thought Love knew Joy's location. She she knew when Joy was um, uh, her main like transistor or something like that mm-hmm. was destroyed. Yeah, that led her to the apartment, and she saw the empty apartment. And said, "Okay, he's gone." So the only other place that would know where he is would be the LAPD because mm-hmm. they probably have a tracker on him. And the reason yeah. why I mention the canine thing is that it's like he's supposed to obey like a, like a dog. His name is Kay, kind of alluding to the Well, whole she calls him bad canine. dog too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, he, she even like calls him bad dog because she understands that Blade Runners are kind of like... Yeah, she calls him a, a, a good boy. A good boy, yeah, guard dog. His, 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 uh, his, he goes by uh, short K, but... Constant K. Constant K, which... Yeah. Constant K, it's kind of funny of a line because in mathematical terms, when you have a constant, you, you use a letter to to um, kind of denote that it's a constant. Mm-hmm. So if you have a general equation and you're using X, Y, and Z in algebra, those are unknowns that you're trying to find for, right? When you're using constants, you'll, or at least I've seen in my learning experience, teachers will always revert to Ks, Ms, and Ns. Those are constants. Those mm-hmm. are things that are uh, those are like multiples so i found that as a funny thing like he is a constant in that world he's not supposed to ever change Mm-mm. he's supposed to be stable at all times and so when he becomes a he, when he changes from a constant to a variable that's when he becomes dangerous 
this film. Love tracks Kay down in Las Vegas. Right. They take Deckard mm-hmm. and they kill Joy. So can now, we can we say that she that she killed uh, Joy? She treats it like she's just kind of stepping on somebody's plaything, right? Yeah, I mean, so well, just let's kind of explain that a bit. She uh, when when Kay and Joy leave his apartment to to go find Deckard mm-hmm. or to go to Las Vegas or to run, basically, uh, she tells him to to remove her from the 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 in par- apartment panel to the to what she calls her present, which is called an emanator. It's okay. the mobile. Um, and he says, well, if I do that and they, they destroy this, that's it. You're gone, like, forever. Yeah. She says, yes, like a real girl. Like a real girl. So in, the, in Deckard's penthouse in Las Vegas, yeah, yeah, you're right. So love does, she stomps on that. Yeah. And her, it, it goes back to uh, Joyce saying, like a real girl, because... At first, when I first watched this film, I thought, oh, okay, well, she's actually feeling like she wants to be a real person, uh, so on and so forth, you know, between um, hiring Mackenzie Davis's uh, character to mm-hmm. wanting to be this real person and uh, talking about how kind of sounding sad uh, that, hey, she's made out of uh, zeros and ones. She's made out of binary code mm-hmm. uh, while real people are made out of um these these base pairs the a c mm-hmm. t and g right um you know she's so she recognizes oh she, well i'm not a real person because you know i'm not solid but i start to question whether she's saying that again just to give k the sense that you know this is like a real relationship she is fragile um and if she goes into just the emanator um, and she doesn't have any backup. It makes it more real. It makes it more real for him because he can lose her forever, just like he could with a real person. It makes her more more valuable to him. But again, this is just so he can feel that. So it's it's just part of her programming, it's literally, part of her pro- to yep. to please him. Yes. Anything that would not, I mean, not so much please him, but anything anything that's going to contribute to making this relationship more real than it actually is more valuable, she, more valuable she is going to to do and she's going to adapt over over time with k right knowing that that would be a valuable option right so she talks to him about uh you know i knew all this time that you were something special that uh you know you're a real boy after all and she's you know he, he's resisting it but i think down down deep he wants to be real he reads books he tries to understand the world around mm-hmm. him he uh obeys his superiors um you know because that's that's part of like that's what he was built for he doesn't know any other life to yeah. be but that does it, but he is curious um can we go back to the beginning of the film for a yeah. second um, the 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 just the wonderful beautiful rooftop scene mm-hmm. where right after he gives her the emanator, she says, um, you know, I'm so happy when I'm with you, and he's like, you don't have to say that. You don't have to say that, yeah. So I think at that point, he's not quite buying 
into it. He's still like, okay, this is she's just saying it that. Breaks the reality for him. Yeah, but as we can, the... we go through the film, even when she, you know, she gives him the name Joe. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when he's convinced that he's the child, and he tells her to stop. Yeah. But then I think he just kind of, he eventually he accepts it, and yeah. then when she's killed, he he looks, you know, he appears visibly shaken. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, earlier I meant he, she breaks the the kind of breaks the the facade of it, but yeah, he wants to be something special, um, and what's what makes him freak out is is fear because he knows that he'll be hunted and mm-hmm. he'll be uh, he'll be killed. He has a self preservation to him. But um, you know, fast forwarding a little bit, when he meets um, what is that woman's name? Fraser. Yes. He's disappointed when he finds out that he's not this chosen one. Child. No, I mean that's the big reveal. There that's is the he's he's not the child, and he's, he's disappointed. Not yeah, a chosen one. Mm-hmm. Oh, and he's he's crushed. He's crushed. He's absolutely crushed. Um, and it, you know we we we've seen so many movies and stories about the chosen one and the mm-hmm. hero's journey. You know the the standard hero's journey. That this was just. I thought this was an incredible. Uh, reveal mm-hmm. that he, you know, he's just a regular Joe to kind of put a it. Yep. So the fact that he's not this mm-hmm. special person, this special, you know, kind of figure that you see in so many movies or so yeah. many stories, I just think makes it so unique. Um, and honestly, you 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 see kind of this narrative now in mm-hmm. other uh, TV shows or movies. Oh, yeah, you've seen it for a while. Yeah. yeah. When we know in this film, in Blade Runner 2049, that the the reason for being special, we know that before we know mm-hmm. that K is that, mm-hmm. and then obviously before we know that K actually isn't that. And right. that just makes it so, at least for the, me as an audience member, just so affecting that, okay, we were on this journey with him. And I would have been satisfied if he was the, the child, but the fact that they yeah. just turned that around. It makes it a, a much more... Uh, it makes the narrative uh, more complex. It gives it the, uh, that twist yeah. that gives gives the story actually more meaning. Yeah. Right? Because now Kay has to choose his purpose. Yes. He's like everybody else um, or like all the other replicants. And he's not part of the LAPD anymore. He's a free man, technically. Yeah. He's also a hunted man. Um, well, actually, no. At this point, they think that he's dead. They left him for dead. So he's a free man. He can choose his path to help out Fraser, um, or he can give them all up to the LAPD. Mm-hmm. Who knows? He could do whatever he wants. Um, so well, let's let's yeah. back up just a little bit because I want to I want to talk about Deckard mm-hmm. and Wallace. So they meet face to face for the first mm-hmm. time, and you know Wallace, what he's trying to do is he's trying to find this child because if he finds the child, then he can. He can create replicants that can procreate. That can procreate, which means probably higher, uh, faster production. Faster production. Well, that's his probably ultimate also, goal. Probably also more cost-efficient production. Yeah, more more cost-efficient. Like, you know, he's looking for larger-scale operations on yeah. more worlds, just, just more production, bigger, mm-hmm. you know, just growth. Um, profits, obviously. Profits, but I think it's also at this point, I mean, he is immensely rich. I mean, the only thing that he's missing is... Uh, a clear vision, both physically, he, he's blind, but 
um, he's uh, he has this ambition. Well, yeah, if he's if he is to maintain this godlike, mm-hmm. you know, status, status mm-hmm. he's he's going to have to continue. He, he wouldn't be able to do status quo. He would have to be continually yeah. have to grow exponentially. Well, that's the thing. I mean, the last the the, the last hurdle. I mean, you can you can Tyrell's final trick. Tyrell's as he, as final trick. Yeah, Tyrell's final trick. Yep. It, I mean, you you can call yourself a god, really, if you're able to, um, you know, create out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Not out of nothing, but when you can create um, out out of uh, you know inanimate substance, a being that can now create more life. Mm-hmm. You create. You can create a species. You that defines. I mean, depending on your definition for a higher being, whatever, but you can claim that title pretty legitimately. Yeah. And you can kind of live on then in the mythos as not just a savior, but a true god of of these people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So Deckard and Wallace meet face-to-face for the first time, Mm -hmm. and he's attempting to get information out of him about the child. Mm -hmm. At the same time, he's kind of toying with him, where... Mm -hmm. He's he hints at the fact that his relationship with Rachel was completely fabricated and designed. All right. So, but it's n- it's not clearly answered. It's still left up for the audience to determine. Okay, is Deckard a replicant? Is he a human? Is this child a a, a replicant? Is it a replicant human hybrid? Hybrid. Yeah. We don't we don't know, and I don't think the answer is important. I think it's more about the question, and. In trying to get information from Deckard, he actually offers him a replicant of Rachel, mm-hmm. and he he doesn't he doesn't buy it. He says that you know that kind of that now famous line, "Her eyes were green," mm-hmm. and then Wallace immediately disposes of her. I really want to focus on Wallace's Earth headquarters. It is really reminiscent of uh, an old ziggurat mm-hmm. that was uh, a center point of a Sumerian religion and in this religion the patron god of a city would occasionally come down from the heavens and uh, visit their city by going into their particular ziggurat. This ancient religion and the ancient mythology is really analogous to the future mythos that we're seeing in the film where what really we see a god of sorts, Wallace, is visiting his patron planet, Earth, by taking temporary uh, shelter in his Earth headquarters. And really, when we look at the gorgeous rooms, the grand halls in this building, they're all beautiful, but one really stands out. The grand chamber in which we see Wallace discuss with Deckard the child and Wallace even has references to biblical figures like Rachel. There are certain things that we see in terms of how the light is bouncing off the water. Uh, If we were to take a closer look at the reflections on the walls behind Deckard and behind Wallace, we do see that there is a difference in reflections. Behind Deckard we see these horizontal undulating waves 
but if we were to look at the light behind Wallace, they actually seem to take a more diagonal and vertical um, direction, and they almost seem to surround Wallace, and specifically Wallace's head, as if it's some sort of halo. It's really reminiscent of older Byzantium icons in which they would have a golden circle around a saint or a holy person's head. So when we see Wallace say, I have millions in terms of he has millions of children, he sometimes talks like an older, wiser person, maybe even kind of like a prophet of sorts, he really both exudes a sense of historical and almost religious significance yeah that's i mean that's a really excellent point and it's you know from my perspective that it's just a wonderful sequence of shots the the light is just masterfully done by roger deakins and his crew what they actually did was they set up a a, on the ceiling above deckard and wallace Mm -hmm. they set up a series of ring lights series of ring Fresnel lights that mm-hmm. were equipped with dimmers. So as you noticed when you're watching the scene, the light is transitioning between lighting Wallace's face mm-hmm. and then lighting Deckard's face. It, it's just really a wonderful, wonderful shot that is done practically. Yes, it's it's quite beautiful. You can really be mesmerized by this room and this scene in general. You kind of want to enter this room and you feel like you can just step into this room. The sound and the light really make the room come alive. Yeah, definitely. Did you want to touch on, you know, why the sound is so important, especially to Wallace in that room? Yes. So Wallace, as we know in the film, is completely blind. And uh, the room itself was inspired by an ancient Kyoto temple. And when the production designer saw... Uh, this temple and he saw how sophisticated it was in its design he had a question about the uh, floorboards as he was walking across the floorboards he noticed that the every every step that he took uh, there was always a slight squeak in the in the floorboards and he asked why that was when the structure was first designed they made that an intentional design so that when everybody in the building was asleep and you would hear uh, floorboards creaking, then they would actually be alerted to a stranger being in the building. So similarly, in this room, Wallace can actually hear the sounds reverberated better um, by the use of uh, water because water actually Mm -hmm. will... um, will vibrate the sounds better in the room. There's actually a really interesting match cut. So at, right after the the copy of Rachel is is shot in the, you know shot in the head, mm-hmm. um, we there's a shot of Deckard from behind. Mm-hmm. You see, it's a it's a, it's a medium close up from behind, mm-hmm. and then we cut from that shot to the same shot of Kay walking right before he sees that giant hologram. Mm-hmm. So. Why I think that's important and why it's a match cut is because Deckard just got to relive losing the person he loved again, like Mm -hmm. seeing them die in front of him. Yeah. 
Kay's gonna Kay's going to experience that right now when mm-hmm. he sees this giant joy hologram and you know he's he's engulfed in this this bright pink color that that this hologram is and she says she says you look like a good joe mm-hmm. and then she she moves away and it goes from bright pink to this to this blue mm-hmm. and he can just see his the expression on his face is just he's he just relived it again he, he had just lost her yeah and i think now he's realizing was it all fake yeah yeah it's the final kind of nail in the coffin there it's like my entire life has been a facade she was a facade the way that i understood things mm-hmm. the way that the world worked i thought was a facade there's truths that have come out that just uh, uh have completely turned his wor- his world yeah. upside down and he can't go back to that yeah and i think i and we'll talk about this a little bit the cinematography you know for this film was done by the great roger deakins i i, I i'm gonna say that shot of the the hologram the wide shot the hologram the giant hologram on the left small k on the right might be the defining shot of this film oh yeah um just just instantly iconic just a just a world-class uh cinematography but when they cut to that close-up of k and he's engulfed in that blue color and, and i can tell you they they did they use practical lights to achieve mm-hmm. that which is really important to get that realistic look just gets me every time i see it yeah. i just think it's a really powerful moment where no words are exchanged it's all on his face yeah it's so you can kind of feel the emotional stirrings mm-hmm. in him mm-hmm. he pulls out deckard's blaster which he had from from yeah. the lost from mm-hmm. las vegas so at that point he chooses his path he chooses his path at that point yeah. which and he had a couple paths to go from like mm-hmm. he uh he could go help out uh deckard mm-hmm. he um uh, by phrases uh was it command almost uh well she tells him you know you can't you can't let Deckard lead Wallace to me. Right. You must kill Deckard. So the way I kind of interpreted it was he wasn't going to kill Deckard, but I think you people could interpret it that way, mm-hmm. that he was going to go do that. Um, so Deckard is being taken off world right now. Mm-hmm. So he's with Love in a in a spinner, mm-hmm. and Kay intercepts them in mm-hmm. this just incredible uh, seawall scene. Yes. Where the uh, the the spinner crashes, he you know he lands, mm-hmm. gets out of his car, uh, gets out of the spinner, which is just a just an amazing shot. Yeah, every frame is a painting in this. Frame. Oh, absolutely. You could you could freeze like like freeze frame uh, any scene and say, okay, I want a painting of that to hang on my wall, mm-hmm. and you you can't go wrong. Yeah, anyway. I would I would I would say it's it's probably the most visually stunning film ever made. I know that's uh, some some people would probably be be upset with that, but I I just I don't. There's never been anything like it, and I don't think there's going to be anything like it for a long time, if ever. And there's critics that would agree with you. There's mm-hmm. the, the the critical reception that came out of this film um, was you know that it's a masterpiece and that it's visually stunning. We definitely had some um, Oscar uh, nominations. Yeah, so on that I mean, too. we'll talk about that. Yeah. that it was nominated for five Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. You had Best Cinematography, Best Visual Effects, Best uh, Production Design, uh, Best Sound Effects Editing and Sound Mixing, and mm-hmm. it won for Cinematography. Roger Deakins finally winning his first Academy Award mm-hmm. after 13 nominations, or this was his 14th nomination, 
and then it won for visual effects i think that was a no-brainer yeah so oscar awards are an, an industrial award but it's nice to see that it was recognized by uh by the community by the film community as um a film that really made uh made its mark yeah absolutely absolutely i, I thought for sure that it would have been nominated for more awards, more the 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 bigger awards. I thought it was really going to be the Mad Max Fury Road of 2017. Mad Max Fury mm-hmm. Road, I believe, had tw- eleven or twelve nominations and won a won a I think five. Uh, it seemed like it won everything that year. It won a lot of the technical awards, but it was not also nominated for best director mm-hmm. and best picture. And I thought for sure, I was like, I knew I, I this is going to be nominated for those those bigger awards, but I think. The fact that it just did not do well at the box office, you know, it only made two hundred sixty million against a uh, one hundred and fifty million uh, dollar budget. Yeah, which it was projected to to gain to earn fifty million that weekend, and did, it yeah. Didn't so hit the that. first weekend it projected to earn about forty eight to fifty million. I think it ended up earning like thirty two, and that was just an indicator that it wasn't gonna mm-hmm. gonna do well. It really needed to to to. To break even, if you account for marketing, marketing, yep, it really needed to make four hundred million dollars, and it just wasn't going to do that. So mm-hmm. it did lose a lot of money, unfortunately. But it was critically, just at, you know, absolutely uh, well received. To make a piece of art, I think you have to take certain risks, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I I like to recite this one quote by Klimt, where he said, "If you cannot please everybody, at least please a few," right? He, they definitely they definitely pleased uh, fans of the original, and maybe they brought a couple more fans over um, to the group. But the fact that it's a work of art, it's a true work of art um, that can be appreciated from all different angles. Yeah, it was it was the producers considered it the most expensive art film ever made. Yeah. You know, it's it's a, it's definitely a huge risk. But you know, they honored the first film. You know. I, I would say if, if it's not one of the best, it, you know, it could be the best sequel ever made. That's true. You know, it's right up there with like Lord of the Rings or, or Godfather Part 2. I would put it in the same. It They could have easily ruined this, and they didn't. There are so many sequels that are ruined. That's what I was afraid of when I first heard that, when it was first announced that this was going to happen i i also i had some reservations as well it could have been it could have gone to to anyone honestly i probably wouldn't have wanted it to go to ridley scott at this point but when i found out that it was going to Denis Villeneuve, i said to myself okay this isn't this is in good hands you know mm-hmm. he's he's very respectful of the uh of this, this the original film mm-hmm. he know he understands the pressure and he's a great filmmaker mm-hmm. I, I just and then once we saw I mean, I've seen his other films, but once we saw Arrival, and that was a year before this mm-hmm. came out, I said, okay, it's going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And from the first trailer that we saw, I just knew, okay, this is this is going to be something completely special. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it really was. It was beautiful all the way throughout. Yep. It's a film that requires the audience member to really meditate on the messages, on the motifs, on all the themes that are in the film. And so, you know, it's... Yeah, it's uh, not a light watch at all, by, watch by any all. means. You yeah. really need to be fully invested to really appreciate it. And it, especially, you know, it's two hours and 43 minutes. That's not a short film. But yeah. at the same time... Better buckle down. Yeah, I definitely have to buckle down. I feel like you can't... It's something you just can't cut down 
otherwise you're gonna you're gonna lose the you know Denis his style is is very slow mm-hmm. slow burn and yeah. if this turned into an action film it wouldn't be Blade Runner it's it's basically a set of rules mm-hmm. to play within this world it needs to be like this right and we have to make it this way we have to make it right we have to use as many practical sets as possible mm-hmm. because you know if you watch the original film it feels like you kind of just reach out and touch yeah. many of the things in that film it, it needed to be the same way if it if it looked like everything i hate to say it, if it looked like the prequel star wars films it wasn't going to work i think this is the type of film that in 10 years people are gonna people who didn't appreciate it are gonna look back and say wow okay that was really special because there aren't films like this it just they don't get made because you see the flip side of it, there is a huge risk. If they don't make money, then they're not going to continue to get made. So you're going to get things that are made that have more universal appeal mm-hmm. but are cheaper to make. So that's why you get a lot of things on green screen. You know, it, it's very expensive to make practical sets. You know, mm-hmm. most of this film was on practical sets. They They used green screen very very little very sparingly so mm-hmm. you know the the scene on the rooftop was was a, a, a very large set and lots of practical lights that wasn't even outside that was a set that was a set oh, yeah so everything was done in uh in budapest mm-hmm. um you know even the 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 famous the now famous you know the snow sweeper shot yeah where Kay's walking down the street that was done in budapest that was on an actual street that they retrofitted that they you know the production design they use very little green screen it just it felt real and i think that was really important to this film going back to the seawall sequence k fights love as deckard is sinking in a in a crashed spinner Mm -hmm. um this the scene the way that it's lit is just is it's incredible where you can basically it's you see your two characters. So you've got Kay and Love, but everything else is in this kind of like ink black. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's just really incredible. The only thing that's really lighting the scene is the light from the spinners. Yeah, that's all you have. Yeah. Yeah. So, eventually, Kay does overpower Love, strangles her, and Actually, drowns her. Right. Strangles and drowns Drown, her. Strangles, yeah. and, strangles drowns and drowns her. her. Um, as she's dying, she looks up at Kay. And it, the light inside the spinner, it almost looks like it's like a halo over mm-hmm. him. Yeah. And I, I, I'm going to say that's probably intentional because at one point in the film, Wallace says, there used to be bad angels. Yeah. I make good angels now. Mm-hmm. So he saves Deckard and basically tells him, you drowned. Mm-hmm. Now yeah. go, go meet your daughter. Yeah, he has fulfilled his purpose and now he can die happy. Like he... he I think that was the the uh, truest moment of clarity and happiness, like actual happiness for mm-hmm. him. Uh, he everything else has been fake. This is the one real thing that he's really accomplished in this world. Yeah, there's a um, a wonderful book by Viktor Frankl called uh, "The Search for Meaning" or mm-hmm. "Man's Search for Meaning." Might be misremembering the title exactly, but um, no, it's it's a book called "Man's Search for Meaning." Yep. And uh, this is uh, this is written by a neuropsychologist, um, so he knows what he's talking about. He's lived through the Holocaust, for goodness sake. He knows what he's talking about. And um, watching this film, I 
remember certain quotes from the book, and this one really stood out. Um, he writes, and again, this is nonfiction. Um, he writes, For the meaning of life differs from man to man, from day to day, and from hour to hour. What matters, therefore, is not the meaning of life in general, but rather the specific meaning of a person's life at a given moment. So K defines his own meaning, his own purpose, mm -hmm. and what his life really, why it has value and what uh, what his life is going to um, signify through mm -hmm. his actions. He chooses it in that moment, I think, on the, the bridge. The, yeah, when he, after, the, after he sees the giant hologram. Yes, he decides, knowing that he's probably gonna die because there's a, there's also a pretty stark musical shift there mm -hmm. the soundtrack kicks yes. up in the seat the seawall mm -hmm. uh the seawall uh track from the soundtrack yes yeah uh but yeah he, he he makes that decision um and he makes decisions separate from frieza from anything well, else frieza frieza's from dragon ball z frieza frieza oh my lord so uh yeah he's been told commands all of his life and now he is was given a choice he yeah he 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 made his own decision and even you know uh when deckard said you should have let me die out there right he made uh, that choice too he made that choice too he could have killed deckard um well there was even that when he's in, when he is engaging love after he gets out of the spinner and there's that amazing shot where he's just standing there for a moment mm -hmm. there's a moment where it cuts to Deckard, and you almost think, okay, is he gonna sh is he gonna shoot him? He but then he yeah. then he immediately turns his gun. It's an amazing shot, an amazing sequence. Turn, you know, he turns the, the the gun and fires at uh at Love, and they they actually hit each other at the same time. Yeah, that's where he gets mortally wounded. Yeah, and and, and Deckard knows that he's a risk, mm -hmm. right? So he's willing to you know sacrifice himself, whatever whatever it takes. But um, Kay bringing Deckard to Staline, um, you know his his death is Deckard's death has been basically faked and um he has fulfilled his purpose of he brought a father and a child together mm -hmm. um he's preserved the cause um and he's saved uh you know Staline's and, and Deckard's life it's it's uh, amazing how this film seems to be about the great it highlights you know injustices that can that can occur um, when one part of society thinks that the other is inferior and so forth, um, it highlights how mistreatment of the environment and wars can just completely damage beyond repair mm -hmm. both the planet and the people and the population. And yet it's a self-contained story about one insignificant individual that makes his own choices and makes himself significant by giving himself... Uh, purpose, purpose and by fulfilling that purpose and yeah. now he can die happy i think that's you know all of us we just want to die happy knowing that we fulfilled our potential our purpose yeah and it's, he's it's, done that i think it's really fitting that they they bring back the tears and rain oh, yeah. theme just just absolutely uh fitting a really really just memorable moment um you know obviously a call back to the original film where roy batty saves deckard's mm -hmm. life so what is it about these replicants that are always saving deckard yeah um he's not really good at being a detective or yeah. a cop or anything <laughs> yeah it's all about the the replicants saving mm -hmm. his ass but yeah there's it, that the, the shot at the very end where he's he's lying there on the steps it's just incredible shot from overhead 
with the snow. That's that's classic Denis right there. You know, another callback to his to his love for Montreal. Mm-hmm. And I, and that 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 shot reminded me a lot of Cowboy Bebop, the end of Cowboy Bebop, mm-hmm. or Spike. Um, any anime fans out there, Spike uh, Spike Spiegel. I thought that was really uh, really iconic, especially considering. Um, just going back to that Blackout 2022 film, the short film, mm-hmm. was directed by Shinichiro Watanabe, who is the director on Copy Bebop as well. Oh, so, so there's some, possibly some connection there. Mm-hmm. So it would be impossible to talk about this film without talking about the technical aspects. Starting... First and foremost, with the cinematography, it clearly this this every frame of this film is a work of art. Roger Deakins deserves every award that he received for this. You know, this is definitely when he won the Oscar for this. This was definitely not a career Oscar Oscar, which often happens. Mm-hmm. This was your awarding for quite possibly the most visually stunning film of all time. Mm-hmm. That's basically what you're doing here. So, I mean, just just. Shot after shot, the snow sweeper shot that we talked about, the rooftop scene, Wallace's headquarters, BB's bar, you know, which has that awesome anime aesthetic with the the food dispensers, you know, when Kay's walking through the the Las Vegas desert, the iconic uh, giant hologram scene, which was mimicked in a, I believe, a BMW commercial, not not long after I remember seeing You're that. You're absolutely right. Uh, yeah, I, I remember seeing it somewhere and thinking. Wait yeah, that that's one hundred percent Blade Runner right oh, there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The seawall sequence, the you know, when K is exit you know, when he gets out of his spinner before engaging love, just an amazing film noir shot. Um, how the entire sequence is minimally minimally lit and then obviously K's the final shot of K laying on the steps. Just just amazing shots. Um, along along with that, you know, you gotta talk about the the production design. This is not your typical science fiction film, you know, everything that could be built was built. Mm-hmm. You know, he used minimal green screen. The world felt so lived in, you know, and I think that just makes it special. Yeah, lived in to the point like, I want to take a vacation there. I don't want to live there, but I want to take a vacation there. And I think, you know, for people that, uh, you know, that uh, may have not have gone to Japan or not researched Japan, like, we've seen images of like vending machines in Japan and like mm-hmm. certain things. And not to mention, when you have real sets, you, mm-hmm. It makes for a better performance with your actors. The actors are so where the, where to thankful <laughs> to not have to be walking around on full green or blue screen. It it, it overall, it's just it's just going to be a better film. And then you know, yes, there's a, there's a ton of visual effects in this film, but they're so seamlessly done um, to fit within this world. And I will say that probably in a couple years, maybe it'll look a little bit aged, but the 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 CGI Rachel face because they put Sean Young, you know made it look like mm-hmm. young Sean Young at that time that's the best one we've ever seen I mean the year before we saw Carrie Fisher in Rogue One as as Leia from the the nineteen seventy yeah. the same thing with Grandma Tarkin yeah. did not look good at all this this looked really good I you know it's probably gonna age but it, this looked amazing. And you also have to mention the amazing soundtrack. So this film, the late uh, Johan Johansson was the original composer on this film. Mm-hmm. Um, he was replaced by Hans Zimmer and Benjamin Walfish in July 2017, which is actually pretty late in the game. 
the one thing I wanted to point out about the soundtrack, um, which I think is just just incredible, is so the main theme for 2049 is this recurring theme, and it's based on four simple notes, mm-hmm. and those four notes actually represent the four uh, nucleopeptides, nucleopeptides in DNA, mm-hmm. right. and throughout the film, you hear this theme uh, reoccur. And each time, each time that it appears, it actually it it, it sounds a little more distorted, mm-hmm. because I think because K is, as he's getting closer and closer to his truth or what he thinks is his truth, mm-hmm. it's actually not the truth. Mm-hmm. So when you know when he finds the the horse in the furnace, the steam is playing again, and the steam is so kind of broken and distorted mm-hmm. but it's the same four notes that have been playing the entire film mm. and i just yeah. think that's a really simple yet just amazing way to to show that i also wanted to talk about the editing a little bit so joe walker is a longtime editor for denis and he edited this film he's also going to be editing the new dune film and i i feel like he just doesn't get enough credit for this film you know it's 2 hours and 43 minutes mm-hmm. and it, yes it is it is a slow burn but it needs you know this guy is working with these world class shots that how could he possibly cut them short mm-hmm. there's just no way this is not the type of film that you're going to have a cut every 2 seconds it's it's just not it would not work you know he allowed every shot to breathe just enough that you were able to immerse yourself in the world but not lose you yeah know. it's definitely something that you need to sit and meditate in absolutely that's mm-hmm. why some of the shot they they will he will just hold on a shot mm-hmm. for a little bit for much longer than than an editor typically would yeah so. it's not it's not hey come look this is where we're at this is look at this mm-hmm. look at this and just experience the moment yeah and it is slow but I think he makes really good uses of J and L cuts. Like, for instance, when K is first flying into the LAPD, he's, we are still in the spinner with him when we start to hear his baseline test audio. Mm-hmm. So can you explain to me exactly what a J and L cut is? Yeah, sure. The easiest way that I can explain that is, let's start with a J cut. So... Say you have two clips in your in your timeline that are next to each other. Let's call them clip A and clip B. Mm-hmm. J and L cuts are used as transitions to go from shot A or clip A to clip B. Mm-hmm. So what you do with a J cut is you're you're cutting from clip A to clip B, but before you cut, the audio of clip B is already starting while you're still on clip A. Mm-hmm. Okay. And an L cut is actually the reverse of that. Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing. You have clip A, shot A, and shot B next to each other. But what you're doing is you're you're cutting to clip B while clip A's audio is still playing. Okay. Obviously, we, we can't talk about this film without talking about Denis Villeneuve as a director. You know, I think he just created something truly special here. He let the story be the slow burn that it needs to be and not many films have the guts to do that mm-hmm. and you know that just tells me as a director he's completely confident in his abilities you know and he's just he's going to be himself these are the types of films he wants to make he knew exactly the type of film he wanted to make all the best memories are hers so animals have a very 
strong uh, symbolism in this film and specifically mm -hmm. the dog and the horse i believe are very strong motifs uh in this film as well so that works really on two levels these motifs one is that the horse and the dog um, represent sort of the way that the value system of things and beings have changed we see that animals or more importantly real quote-unquote animals uh, are valued much more than uh, things like uh, replicants even Val uh, animals are bought and treasured while replicants that are su supposedly really very very close to humans if not even are disposable are disposable they're they're being cut down um, much easier Wallace himself cuts one down uh, momentarily after her quote-unquote birth uh, while animals are precious they're uh, they can be thought of, of uh, even as a status symbol very similarly to how they were considered in the book mm -hmm. uh, they also um, give a question to what exactly is real it comes back to that question of what exactly is real and why does it matter because as we see with Deckard's dog when Kay asks him is it real Deckard said why don't you ask him at this point it doesn't really matter if the dog was genetically engineered mm -hmm. uh, the the dog serves its purpose as a companion Can to Deckard yeah exactly a companion and when we talk about the well, the wooden horse and horses in general one of the things that we see when we meet uh, Badger or Dr. Badger. One of the things that we see with Dr. Badger is he says, No, with this wooden horse, I can get you a real horse, one of those Wallace designs. So he refers to a Wallace horse as a real horse. They're already seeing this changeover from what was really real to artificially created real because those truly are the most real beings that are left on this planet. The other thing that we see in Deckard's penthouse specifically is that he has started to collect some old relics and paintings and one of those paintings is actually a Picasso called Boy Leading a Horse. So what that tells us is that things that we treasure today, paintings that are worth tens of millions of dollars uh, today in this future world are worthless they they hold no value because people have turned back to a survivalist mode in, in sorts so real things uh, real things and real food and medicine and things that are more tangible like the services that we see right next to BB's bar for example are much more valuable than mm -hmm. things that than more decorative things or things that are even um, higher in art value but obviously it's, it seems like they hold some sort of personal value to Deckard if you yes. look in that same sequence um, right after Deckard and Kay have their really important conversation at the bar in his penthouse mm -hmm. we cut to a shot of a picture frame that has mm -hmm. Rachel on it but you can also see those those wooden animal figurines mm -hmm. and one is the uh, the rhino that he actually had in his apartment in the original film yeah, I didn't actually notice that until rewatching the original film just recently. You see, so those little subtle nods are things that true fans will enjoy 
and again it's that going back to the level of detail that is included in every single shot in every single room mm-hmm. is absolutely astounding from the vast uh from the vast expanses that we see in the environments to little subtle uh easter eggs and really tangible um and tactile things that exist even on the corner of a desk in a room. yeah and the other way that the animals and specifically the horse itself serves as a motif in this film is that the implant that incorporates this horse is very important so in the in the same way that the unicorn was important in the first film and this is of course debatable among uh, viewers sure uh, regardless of what was thought of for the unicorn itself the horse though serves a similar function in the sense that we see K using that as proof that he is uh, a real boy in a way <laughs> but then we find out that what he believes is actually not true and what we actually see is this transformation of the horse from being proof of K's realness to actually representing Deckard itself. So the horse is representative of Deckard in the sense that, for one, he carved the horse for his daughter. And kind of going back to the painting in the penthouse, the title can also be a play on words, boy leading a horse. K, the real boy, is leading the horse, Deckard, to his daughter, Celine. Mm-hmm. He's leading him to safety in a way. Regardless of how Picasso might have wanted to um, express meaning in, in the painting we can interpret that um, as uh, a possible meaning for this particular film yeah do you think is there anything deeper to k giving the horse back to deckard at the very end of the film before k dies i think so the horse is both a symbol and sort of a MacGuffin almost in, in the film and we thought that and we thought that it was a connection point to Kay's realness, but we only see, like you like you said, we only see him give the horse back to his true owner, mm-hmm. to the to who the true, truly real person is. Well, at, that's also debatable. Which is also deba- debatable, but we we see that only at the end of the film. So he, in a sense, has regained his humanity back, his his sense of purpose too, because now he's rejoined with his daughter. And the daughter almost kind of sent out the horse as a beacon to all of the other replicants because they have that memory implant in them. And the horse itself was stowed away in what looked like maybe like a part of an incinerator until one of the replicants can retrieve it back for her. Yeah, and it's really interesting because I think it ties all back into what Deckard says in his conversation with Kay is it was all part of the plan. Mm-hmm. And I think the horse was as much as part of the plan as everything else. And as a one last Easter egg, the painting boy leading a horse is actually referenced, not directly mentioned in title, but is actually referenced in pale fire, bringing this symbol back around to how you interpret it as uh, how you will believe in its significance 
meaning by it i mean the horse itself yeah and i think that really just shows among many other things just how much thought and care the filmmakers took in making this film oh absolutely so we mentioned how k is a reference to a canine mm-hmm. a work dog mm-hmm. and that is uh, k's character as well so k is also a reference to a few things one is the the middle initial of the author philip k dick correct and if you go back to the original film deckard's blaster is called a pkd so mm-hmm. philip k dick it's a it's a reference to that and in terms of the term replicant that is not something that is used in the original book by philip k dick he uses the term andes short for androids because mm-hmm. in the in that world they're still mechanical beings yep uh in this world they are genetically engineered bioengineered yeah bioengineered uh humanoid uh, a humanoid workforce basically so where did the term replicant come from so the term replicant actually came from david webb peoples he's the screenwriter that came in to rewrite help rewrite the original blade runner and it was uh, coined by his daughter actually um they were looking for a term in the film that would be different from androids and she came up with replicant that's pretty cool because they replicate they replicate humans so it there's a logical conclusion to that term exactly cool. so what are we watching on the next episode of in out points on the next episode of in out points we're going to be watching a story about a quietly troubled young man who returns home for his mother's funeral after being estranged from his family for a decade sounds interesting i know what film it is but we're going to let the audience uh think it over and join us next time So if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review and also feel free to suggest any films for future episodes. And with that, I am Josh, the video producer. And I'm Val, the amateur film buff. And this is the In Out Points Podcast. See you next time. Sayonara. Sayonara.